Welcome to the Vax Up Podcast, a podcast that shines light on health organizations who use social technologies to get accurate vaccine information to their communities. This show is brought to you by the Bay Area Global Health Alliance and the Sabin Vaccine Institute, both members of the Alliance to Advance Health Online. Vax Up is produced by the team behind a Shot in the Arm podcast. And now here's our host, global health strategist and advocate, Ben Plumley. And let me add my welcome to this episode of the Vax Up podcast, where we profile interesting collaborations to promote vaccine confidence through the use of digital and social outreach. And in this episode, we're going to Chicago, the Windy City, to learn more about a fascinating public-private partnership made up of local groups, a national vaccine confidence nonprofit, a world-famous PR agency, and a leading pharmaceutical and vaccine R&D company. And as usual, we will look at how the lessons learned can be applied in other settings across the US and beyond, particularly in how to reach low-income communities and communities of colour. So let me start by introducing our panel today. We're joined by Elise Galloway, who is a Vice President of Health at the internationally respected public relations firm Edelman. Elise, welcome to Vax Up. Thanks so much, Ben. Really excited to be here. We're also joined by Erica Devold, who is the Director of Strategic Communications and Partnerships with Vaccinate Your Family, and is one of the most respected US nonprofits devoted to promoting good policy around routine vaccination. Erica, welcome. Great you can join us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And we're also joined by Ava Skolnick, who is Associate Director of Health Equity Programs and Partnerships at Merck. Ava is a health policy expert who has managed Merck's involvement in the partnership. Ava, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ben. Excited to be here. And last, and by absolutely no means least, we have Kristen Hobbs, who is the Senior Project Manager for Quality Improvement and Equity at the National Minority Quality Forum. And she has extensive experience in evaluating national public health programs and the role of data in advancing and improving health equity for communities of color. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Ben. So excited to be here. So my first question, I guess, actually for the Immunity uh, Chicago partners, you've worked with each other in developing this partnership, but uh, have you actually ever been able to meet in person or has it all been virtual over these last couple of years? We have gotten to know each other's living rooms and bedrooms and offices very well from a virtual perspective, but we have not had the pleasure of meeting each other in person yet, which is very strange. (laughs) Well, let's, Elise, let's kick off then with asking why this partnership? What is the state of uh, vaccine acceptance and confidence in Chicago's minority communities, particularly communities of color? Ben, I think that's a great question. And I think to answer that, we'll kind of start at a macro level and then go to Chicago locally. Um, Even before COVID-19, which is hard to conceptualize, uh, there was a huge rise in anti-vaccine sentiment. And whether it's from party politics or moral objections, disinformation, um, this anti-vaccine sentiment really resulted in sustained drops um, in vaccination rates across the country um, and brought back diseases that we thought were eliminated. We're thinking measles. I think in 2019, there were almost 1,300 cases of measles. That 
is the greatest number of cases reported since 1992, right? So this this has been a, a longstanding issue. Um, the crisis was only magnified in COVID-19 with stay-at-home orders, overwhelmed healthcare systems, missed appointments. Um, so we've we've been in this for a little bit of time. Uh, in Chicago specifically, it's really interesting because Chicago has historically had higher than average immunization rates. But if you digest the information and analyze it, you'll see that there are lower rates in the southwest side of Chicago. You divide that up a little bit further, do more analysis, you notice that those communities are predominantly Black, Hispanic, and Latino, right? And so they reflect the larger inequities and, and disparities present in the U.S. health system and health experiences. Um, and we found that this gap between vaccination rates and targets and things like that really came from a gap in terms of information, information about vaccines um, and information about how to actually access those vaccination services. And so we really wanted to create a hyper-local program focused on Chicago insights to provide the right information so people could feel confident and comfortable getting vaccinated. So Kristen, let me come to you. Just listening to Elise, uh, how does that resonate? Um, the need to be hyper-local, but are you, you know, are these experiences that you have seen in other color, uh, communities of color across the United States? Absolutely. And I think one of the things that really amplified vaccine hesitancy and really lowered vaccine confidence in black and brown communities during the pandemic was already this mistrust and um, years of, of decades and, and hundreds of years of historic injustices on the bodies of black and brown people that were brought to light again by misinformation and disinformation, right? And so when people really don't know what to cling to and they don't know what to do, they cling to the things that they're most familiar with. And a lot of these stories as black and brown people, we were taught growing up, we were then learning more about these stories in school and in our universities. And when we, you know, I'm a uh, epidemiologist by trade, I have my master's of public health in epi. And so learning about all of these things and knowing a little bit more than the general population gave me a privilege and an advantage to really make smart decisions about vaccinations. But that's not the same. And it's not, um, the case for all black and brown communities. And so when we talk about this um, lack of information, it's so imperative also that we remember there's a lot of information out there that's not culturally appropriate or culturally responsive, right? So black and brown people don't even see themselves in the millions of infographics that exist or the social media graphics that are plugged through a lot of our trusted you know, public health sources. And we have to um, remember that, especially when we're going hyperlocal. And I think these are the same trends that we've seen across, you know, a lot of the work that we're doing uh, nationally. Erica, can I turn to you? Um, obviously, Vaccinate Your Family has seen very significant declines in vaccine rates across all age groups. But what brought you to Chicago? What specifically about this partnership brought you to the table? We had a request. At Vaccinate Your Family, we've been working in communities for over 30 years now. And when someone reaches out to us and says, hey, 
we're doing a program. It's community based. We need some assistance. We're always here and happy to help. And so when Merck and Edelman and the steering committee partners approached us, we said, sure, what can we do? And when we looked at the program, not only were we impressed with with, with uh, Immunity Chicago was doing, but we also saw an opportunity to go even further into the community. Anyone who knows Chicago knows how neighborhood-based Chicago is. And so we were able to look at the data and specifically pick a neighborhood, in this case, Pilsen, and develop a micro-grant program around that. So we were able to set aside some money to go into the community and say, hey, what are you guys doing? What do you guys need to help your neighbors, help your community feel more confident vaccinating? And that has been and continues to be an amazing partnership, helping people in the community who know what they need, helping them actually be compensated for their time, be compensated for their work, and then helping lift their voices back up and say, hey, look at what this really great individual in some cases, not even organizations, look at what is happening in communities. And isn't this a great model, particularly when there's some microgrant funding attached? Um, and we're going to come on to just what the the program is, the partnership is in a, in a little bit. Um, I think at, at this point, it's still very interesting to understand what the challenges were and, and, and why people came to the table. And um, Ava, I guess the same question comes to you. What What is it about this challenge that inspired you and, and piqued your interest? Um, and, and I guess, you know, a, a question that many of our viewers and listeners would want to know is just, you know, what is it that, uh, you know, a large pharmaceutical and vaccine company, Merck, um, what is it that you felt you could bring to the table and contribute? Yeah, it's a great question, Ben. Thanks for asking it. So really at Merck, we're targeting areas where we can make both meaningful, measurable, and lasting impact on both societal barriers to health and uh, factors that that contribute to health outcomes, like we know systemic racism is underlying a lot of inequalities. And so we've made our key health equity commitments through our ESG goals to advance and expand access to health, one of which is which we're hoping to reach about 30 million additional people in low middle income countries and in the US for underserved populations by 2025. And so you know, we know that Merck has a legacy of implementing projects that really elevate community voice voices, because as Erica mentioned, um, we have to go where, where people want us and we have to be partnering with people that know their communities best. And so it was really, we were thinking about our approach and from, from both our Merck lens, we've been seeing these trends about declining routine vaccination rates for a long time, declining trust in, vac in vaccines. We knew that we had to look outside in. Really, the heart of this initiative that brought us to the table is that it's community-based, community-driven, and we're going really hyper-local to meet patients where they are and to tailor to their unique needs appropriately. And because at Merck, we have so many different research capabilities, we really were able to listen first and leverage specifically our market research capabilities to provide these like valuable on-the-ground insights so that our Chicago pilot could really be tailored to the local community needs. And, and I guess I wonder what the specific challenges now that we're in the age of pandemics, um, and particularly the impact of lockdowns, you know, what this meant for developing a partnership like this. Um, Elise, perhaps I could I could come back to you. Um, you know, just just what is the role of digital and social engagement, um, and how can it be paired with the more traditional forms of outreach and engagement that um, you know groups um, like Erica's and Kristen's have been so good at? Um, you know, why 
did did you think about just a purely digital campaign or were you sure that you needed this this blend of different approaches right from the start that's such a great question and i think kind of an overarching like thesis or main thought that i remember i know we're in such a digital and social era we're still human beings at the core of it we still have communities we still have employers or community hubs and different groups that we engage with and, and socialize with even within covid uh, and thinking of when this was really launched in late November, November to December, the world was starting to open up, right? People were going back to work or potentially going to communities and things like that. And so we really wanted to offer a trifold offering. So not only engaging people on social and digital, but also providing on the ground tools to community partners, employers, et cetera, and kind of wrapping that with a digital hub where more information could be found. And by intertwining audiences, multimedia and personal lives, that really enabled us to have multiple touch points, right? To be able to drive the message or to drive the information to people in a variety of different ways and really help boost that confidence and boost that intention to spark action. So by complementing both multimedia, social and digital with on the ground community tools and partnerships, really think we've maximized the potential of Immunity Chicago and really increasing not only vaccine confidence, but immunization intention as well. And Ben, if you would believe, we actually conceptualized this project prior to COVID-19. And so the, the genesis of this project was really longstanding vaccine hesitancy that we saw. And I think in doing so, we were able to design a program prior to COVID-19 that was already, like Ali said, integrating both elements. And I think the other part of this that that is interesting is that because we are we're centering equity in this, we wanted to make sure that we were bringing all folks along, right? We needed to be digitally inclusive. We've heard that COVID-19 has actually accelerated the digital divide. And we wanted to make sure that this program in Unity Chicago was not contributing to that. And so by combining both social um, and on the ground techniques, we were able to both reach folks that are digitally savvy and reach folks that maybe weren't as digitally, digitally savvy to make sure that we could you know, serve the most patients um, as possible. Because we make that that sort of assumption, don't we? Um, and it's a foolish assumption a lot of the time that everybody has access to digital and social outreach and, and more so that people trust it. Um, and that isn't necessarily the case. Um, and, and I wonder, um, you know, Erica, Vaccinate Your Family has always been about building up grassroots engagement as sort of one of the primary ways of building trust in routine vaccines, vaccinations. How did you think about doing that in the context of the COVID lockdown? Great, great question. So what we saw at the beginning of the COVID lockdown was people fumbling for who to trust, who to look to for information. There was a lot of different information out there. It was changing constantly, right? It was a new virus. So obviously science is going to change. New information is coming in every day. And so what we really tried to do at Vaccinate Your Family is teach people the process by which information is shared, the process of science, as opposed to holding to wear masks, double up your masks, go back to one mask, change your type of mask, right? We really wanted people to understand and feel confident in the process. So yes, information is going to change, but that's okay. That means it's working, right? When we saw some vaccines that were pulled back from the market temporarily, that's good. That means the process is working. So helping people have confidence in the process 
helps build that confidence. But then also understanding a lot of what we were hearing was, let's tell the trusted messengers to tell people. I'm all about let's have a conversation with the trusted messengers, right? Let's work with them to figure out what they're hearing, what they need. And in this program in particular, by having those conversations, finding out what is needed within their communities and the direction of the campaign. And I can see, Kristen, that this is something that clearly is resonating with you as you've, you know, worked in this field over the years. Just just what do you think are the opportunities and challenges of using digital and social uh, engagement in, in overcoming hesitancy in, um, you know, a range of communities of, of colour? What have you seen there? So I think um, everything that each panelist has said has resonated with me times a hundred. The first being allowing trusted messengers to lead community programs. I always say if you are sharing space without sharing power, you are engaging in tokenism, right? And that means for our side in, in MQF is that we create programs where community leaders can bring their voices to the table and also their authority to tell us that's not going to work in my church. That's not going to work in my barbershop. That's not going to work in my pharmacy. Um, we have a Faith Health Alliance where we're engaging churches across the nation to increase vaccination uptake in their communities. We have a Hair Wellness Warriors project that we're expanding with the University of Maryland and then a Community Pharmacist Ambassadors program and really speaking to um, how can we engage social media and engage our trusted messengers to learn how to use social media? Because we also assume that all community leaders know how to use social media, know how to access it, know what things are trending. Um, you know, we just helped someone in our Hair Wellness Warriors Network build an Instagram and really focusing on reels. And, you know, they were really excited about posting, but reels are the thing that the algorithm prioritizes. Um, and so in the space of, of using trusted messengers, is it's really about partnering with them and then understanding how to use existing social media tactics and, um, you know, understanding the digital divide is also a particular, particularly big inequity. Um, sometimes it's not even just about, you know, do people know how to use it, but do they have access to it? And what we learned through all of our community engagement programs is that people really, even if they do have access, they want to hear from that trusted messenger. So they'd rather be with their double mask or their KN95 mask on at church, listening to their pastor host a virtual panel about vaccinations versus jumping on a Zoom to hear about it because they trust their pastor and they want to see their pastor's face, you know? Yeah. Do you know, in some of the um, previous episodes of Vax Up, and we've looked at how um, change leaders and uh, agents of trust have been engaged, when you use social media, we've seen that a number of partners have been, you know, really looking at young people as the trusted sources of information. And it's, it's sort of like the complete reverse of what you would Im normally imagine, that they go to the elders and say, look, this is the information um, that we really need to, to communicate. 
it's fascinating. Maybe we should go to the actual project itself. Um, and um, Elise, perhaps I could start with you. Um, give us the 38,000-foot level. Describe um, Immunity Chicago. Um, what did you create? All right. This is, this is a big one, but <laughs> what I think is important um, is just understanding the underpinnings of Immunity Chicago from a kind of conceptual perspective. And my MPH friends and social behavioral science friends will probably geek out about this, but the underpinnings of Immunity Chicago were three um, social behavioral science principles, social proof, herd behavior, and immunization intention. Um, social proof is giving people a trusted group to follow. Herd behavior is offering people a trusted leader. We've been speaking to this a lot lately in the conversation. And implementation intention is helping people make a plan. And so these were kind of the three core tenants that we had. And after a lot of research, um, both kind of research that we conducted on the ground, speaking with different partners in the community, we created that trifold offering. So engaging on social and digital, and you'll see on the slides, um, some images uh, in regards to what we put out socially and digitally on the ground tools for our community partners and that digital hub. Uh, in regards to uh, the creative that you're seeing, we leveraged children, youth, adolescents. That doesn't mean that the, vac the routine vaccine um, gaps and issues only apply to these populations and these age groups, but we know that children serve as a great gateway to larger communities, to the family. Um, everyone wants the best for their children, for the next generation. And so we really leverage children, adolescents in our social and creative to open up the conversation and engage people and bring them in. Our now, Elise, let me, let, me, let me dive in here because for um, listeners that consume uh, the VaxUp podcast by audio, they won't have seen these fantastic digital images. And I think these are just really terrific. Um, uh, you, you know, your kid's first superpower is vaccination. I think it's absolutely terrific. Can you just describe uh, a little bit about what they look like? Definitely. So each creative asset has something really fun and punchy in terms of the phrasing. So the one we see on the screen right now is Michaela can fight off evil measles. And you see a beautiful young woman to the, to the right of it with a Chicago star or something akin to a Chicago star on her face. So it's kind of giving off that super power, that super um, concept um, and really just leans into the fact that a routine vaccine is your child's first superpower. And so we took different uh, vaccine preventable diseases and fun super type of themes, um, tying them together with imagery of strong children, strong adolescents um, in a position of power, um, an empowering stance um, for this campaign. So you talked about the trifold approach, that it's both digital, uh, talking to leaders, but also you know, grassroots on the ground work. And I, I wonder, Erica, if I could turn to you here and and just how did the partnership, um, a sort of a, a, a mutual reinforcing of, of, uh, of benefits, if you like, but how did it assist your outreach efforts with local communities? What did you bring to the partnership, but also what did you learn? We learned so much from this partnership, right? It's always, you always learn something when you talk to people. And it doesn't matter who you talk to, right? Whether it's the head of an organization, 
whether it's a person you see walking down the street, right, or, or your, your cab driver, you always learn something when you talk to people. So this was an amazing opportunity for us to talk to people who are working in neighborhoods in Chicago every single day and to find out, yes, we have all these national surveys of this is what people think about vaccines generally, COVID-19 vaccine in particular, what is actually happening in communities? What are the concerns? And so this was a really amazing opportunity. For example, those ads, right? We at Vaccinate Your Family have always wanted to do a superhero ad campaign. We always thought that was so cool, right? And for Edelman to come in with the research capabilities and with this partnership to test that concept, hey, is this something that resonates with people? And to see the actual data, yes, it does. People do recognize vaccines as their child's first superpower was absolutely incredible. And it's very reaffirming for an organization like ours because there's a lot of dis and misinformation online. It's very reaffirming to hear when you bring information to people and you have those open conversations, they get it. So, Ava, can I just turn to you? I mean, we'll come to the results in just a second. But um, what really stood out to you, uh, I suppose, qualitatively from uh, the partnership? Um, and were there things there that you thought could apply in other therapy areas that you're involved in? Uh, I know you have um, have expertise in sexual and reproductive health, um, but were there things that really stood out to you? Yeah, there was so much that stood out to me. And I think the thing that stood out to me really the most was just how deliberate we were in co-creating with folks that knew Chicago best. We were really leveraged every single viewpoint so that we could make sure that it resonated in local communities. I think I want to shout out one of our amazing local community-based party uh, organizations on the ground and, and recall a memory from our first kind of organizing event. And so it's Marty from Casa Central. And I just remember so vividly this amazing insight that Marty had telling us that um, he works with the Mexican consulate in Chicago. And that is a place where many folks uh, in, the, in the Mexican community receive vital health information and how we needed to be partnering with the Mexican consulate um, to, to be providing vaccine confidence information there. Now that insight is something that Marty is probably one of the few people that know because of his local relationships. And so to me, that really stood out to me in terms of how we went about program development. And I think the process, which Erica touched on, is something that we can really be applying to other therapeutic areas, such as oncology, thinking about the global vaccines business as well, um, and really making sure that we're leveraging and, and maximizing and having that equity lens from end to end, whether it's the start of program development all the way to using equitable evaluation methods as well. And so, Kristen, let me turn to you. I mean, how does this how does this feel? What are your reactions to 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 seeing the uh, the trifold and and our kids superheroes? It feels amazing. I think to really leverage the opportunity that families have to see their their the world through the eyes of their children is something that moves people a lot more than just them, you know, wanting to be vaccinated for themselves, right? Because we know that you know children only recently were able, you know, as young as five to be vaccinated. And for a mama like me, who has a three-year-old, I'm waiting patiently on that <laughs> vaccination for her age group. And, and knowing that, 
you know, you guys have been listening to your community partners in ways that really frame the foundation of your program and its implementation and then taking action on that is really about that. That's really what health equity is all about. Right. You have data, you have all these this information, qualitative and quantitative, and then taking that data and making it actionable is phenomenal in the way of really improving health outcomes for communities of color. So I guess this is where the rubber hits the roads. Um, Elise, you've just released um, outcomes in a report from uh, Immunity Chicago. What did we learn? We learned a lot and we had amazing results overall. So I'll, I'll break it down in that kind of trifold orientation that we had socially and digitally we blew it out of the water. We um, <laughs> it's just, I'm geeking out. It's really exciting. Uh, we had 242,000 clicks to our landing page from our social and digital, just from our paid component, not organically from our other partners. And so this really means that we reached our target audience three to seven times just on the social and digital platforms. Um, we had visitors to the website spend three minutes and 30 seconds on the landing page. The average amount of time people spend on a website is 60 seconds. So I'm not great at math, but that's a lot. That's a, that's a lot more right there. Um, we had great um, out of home activations, such as featuring our creative on the United Center, which was amazing and I'm pretty sure is still up, which is great. Um, Partners in Health shared all of our information with 600 vaccine ambassadors. Um, the microgrant program is still active and live. Um, and what I think is most encouraging is that our partners in Immunity Chicago, those community-based organizations, the employers, said that the materials not only increased knowledge, but increased trust. And that is so important. That is something that can be sustained over time. Uh, so being able to see all of these things come together and be validated by our partners who were disseminating the information that we're having the conversations so that it increased community trust and knowledge. I think that's honestly one of the most rewarding metrics that we could have. I mean, Erica, the the one of the purposes of the VaxUp podcast is to provide tools and insights to other vaccine implementers about how to how to use social and digital outreach, but also how it sort of blends with more traditional um, approaches. And I guess uh, my question for you would be, what are the nuggets that you think you can take for this for your work in other communities? I think this follows on beautifully with a lot of what Vaccinate Your Family has been doing, sparking the conversation online but not ending the conversation there. Not getting discouraged when you get those comments and that negativity on social media that, oh my goodness, the sky is falling and everybody hates vaccines. No, <laughs> there's squeaky wheels online. There's squeaky wheels in real life, right? In person, but spark those conversations. Don't be afraid to have them, right? Be prepared for any pushback you might get. But these um these social pieces, actually, when we ran them on our properties on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter, I got, because I'm the person who unfortunately has to watch all those negative comments roll in, I saw less negativity on these posts than I've seen in a long time. Um, so it was, again, that encouraging piece of, yes, share positive messages. We don't have to worry about countering disinformation and misinformation all the time. 
just share the positivities about vaccines. Why do you vaccinate? Why is it important for your community to vaccinate? And then remember to continue those conversations into real life. And what are the pieces? Because we can't be in every community, right? We all have our own personal community, uh, but there are millions of others out there. How can you create information, resources, handouts, et cetera, so that people can have those conversations in their own communities? And I will say, if you build it, they will engage with it. As Elise said, three and a half minutes on this page, and that's actually average across our English language pages. Our Spanish language pages at vaccinateyourfamily.com are four and a half plus minutes per page. So people are hungry for this information. And I, I guess, Ava, I would really be interested to know how you see, again, taking the the uh, the metrics, the evaluation here, and how um other vaccine implementers might be able to use that. Um, I mean, this clearly is a gold standard program. Um, but how would you do this if it's just you working in, say, a local clinic in one of the southern states of the US, or indeed on the East Bay of the Bay Area here in California? Yes, I wonder if we know anyone who could uh, help, help with uh, that then. Um, so I think really the thing about evaluation is you know, there's standard forms of evaluation. And then because we built this hyper-local approach, there's a lot of nuances of the campaign, right? That a standard evaluation might not actually pick up on. And so as, as my fellow panelists mentioned, that our messaging and information was really in the languages smoke and by the communities we were aiming to serve and really responded to those uh, specific communities' concerns. And so it, that proves challenging when we're trying to evaluate um, broader campaigns that are hyper-local. But I think these standard methods can really be applied and chosen carefully. So I'm actually very proud about how thoughtful our initiative have been about embedding equity from the co-creation of the initiative all the way down to those equitable evaluation techniques and making sure that we're sharing back those wins with the broader steering committee, providing a public toolkit like Elise mentioned for other leaders and organizations interested in vaccination equity and creating a space where community-based organizations can get the information they need. I think Edelman did a really great job at providing um, weekly sessions for, for our community-based organizations to come. And I, I, I think that that is something um, that every initiative could, could learn from ours, is making sure that there's a space for questions and that we're, we're both providing information, but then also providing tools and resources about how to use this information and how to make sure that we're, we're gaining um, trust of communities. So, Kristen, it begs the question, um, how can we use this? How would you uh, incorporate some of the findings into your thinking, into, into your work? What stands out? Absolutely. So um, we have a broader health champions program around our vaccination work. And that's where I was mentioning before. That's what um, the Faith Health Alliance and our Hair Wellness Warriors and Community Pharmacist Ambassadors program feeds into. And so really thinking about what um, you've learned in Chicago to build programs that really, again, leverage the family aspect of you know, increasing vaccination uptake and also creating a space where the community-based organizations and their community members can have a say in the evaluation as well. So that's one of the things that we've learned throughout the pandemic through our work um, that I think could be beneficial nationally and especially in Chicago. Um, you've had so much success 
And it's really because community members and leaders were a part of every step of the way. And, and having them, you know, as, as an epi, I'm traditional evaluator as well. And so it's like, well, you can't use formative evaluation for that or development. It's all these standard evaluation techniques that don't really translate to on the ground work and public health interventions that really seek to um, put the, the community at its center. And that's what I'm learning when, you know, through our work, but also just hearing all of this great, these great results that have come out of Chicago is that, you know, it's not going to be our cookie cutter academia that we're used to. Um, it's not going to be always that we can apply. You know, I was I'm so glad that you were able to apply those theories and models, those behavioral frameworks. Um, but a lot of times I'm sitting and I'm creating a program. And I'm like, oh, you know, let's use the trans theoretical model of change. And then it just blows up in my face because it's not going to always be so cookie cutter. And I think that's what we have to remember, especially when we're leading with equity, as Ava said. So all of the resources that we've spoken about uh, are going to be in the show notes, both from um, Immunity Chicago, but Kristen, also some of the um, materials that you've spoken about. So they'll be there for our, our vaccine implementers to to look at and refer to. Um, but are there things that we've missed? I'll just throw this open to the panel. Are there things that, you know, hey, Ben, we really, really need to emphasize this. So I don't know if anyone, if anything jumps out at anyone that they'd they'd raise. Yeah, I, oh, I'll go first. Uh, real yeah, quick. go for it. I, one thing that we have been hearing that we are now able to build a robust program around is that um, Black and Brown communities really felt a lot of their hesitance towards the vaccine was that we were coming to their communities because COVID-19 was something that could get white people sick just plain and simple, transparent, honest feedback to us. And they said, you know, we were sick before COVID. We're going to be sick after COVID. There's diabetes, hypertension, chronic kidney disease, CBD. I mean, it's it, we've got the gamut over here, girls. So what are you going to do to help us? And at NMQF, we've really been trying to figure out ways not only to, you know, bolster our social media and digital presence when it comes to vaccinations and total health, but how do we then build public health interventions around that? I think we kind of solved the social and digital um, piece, but the public health interventions, we really need to take some more time to think about how do we go to communities and, and you know leverage our existing community engagement programs. And I'd love to follow on to that, Kristen, because you're exactly right. What we're already seeing is people walk away. And at Vaccinate Your Family, right, we always say we've been here for 30 years. We're going to be here for the next 30 years. We're here to be partners. But how can we keep that engagement from national and federal partners going? Because we're already seeing that disappear. I also have a three-year-old. I am very worried about how we are lifting restrictions, et cetera, for those five below, right? Because who's going to suffer at the end of the day, right? Who are the populations that are going to suffer? And so I, I can't, I just, I just want to echo that, right? We cannot now walk away. We are starting to solve this problem. Vaccines has been a great door, great way to wedge open that door. How can we now bust that door open to all of the health issues that we need to address? And I think to tag on, I think we're, we're brain melding in some ways. This is a sustained effort. This is not a Band-Aid solution, right? This requires culture change. This requires shifting attitudes beliefs, understanding, and that takes time. And so I think what was really important for me, Chicago, our 
objectives were vaccine confidence and immunization intention, very intentionally. Getting vaccine rate information in real time is very difficult. We have a fragmented healthcare system, but having proxy measures that really hone into culture, beliefs, attitudes, those are just as valuable to sparking change that can be sustained over time rather than just in a pinpoint moment. So I think that's something that is really important. We're in this for the long haul. This is not just a, a one and done. It's changing a whole system of beliefs, attitudes, and cultures. And I think we've learned um, in all successful public health programs, education and uh, engagement programs, that you've got to keep it fresh. You've got to keep innovating. Um, Ava, is there anything that, that you'd add that we haven't covered? I think the one thing that I would pick up on is something that Kristen said, is that a lot of the disparities we saw in COVID-19 vaccination and vaccination in general, we're seeing in other areas of health. And I think similar to the drop in routine vaccination rates that we saw due to the pandemic, all preventative health screenings have declined, you know, especially thinking about cancer screenings as well. And so actually Merck is currently supporting the American Cancer Society's um, return to screening initiative, which is aimed at reducing cancer disparities in the U.S. and, and preventing later stage cancer because of the disruption caused by COVID-19. And so I think COVID-19 is, is, is a catalyst in many ways to many of these initiatives. But like both Elise, Erica, and Kristen mentioned, there is long-standing mistrust of the medical system that has existed before COVID and will exist after. And so we need to continually show up and partner shoulder to shoulder with our community-based partners and national partners as well. Well, what a really terrific conversation. And, and I mean, you can tell from, from all of you that there's real enthusiasm about what um, Immunity Chicago has done, but also how it ties into some of the other initiatives and approaches that are happening ar around the states. Um, this has been a really fascinating and wonderful conversation, but I can't let any of you go. We always ask our VaxUp guests, so what are some of the other uh, clips, social technology tools or initiatives that have piqued your interest? Um, doesn't have to be in health. It can be anything at all. It can be a, a TikTok clip. It can be anything. But um, Elise, can I start with you? You can, you may. What is top of mind for me? I'm not on TikTok, but Rush Talk was something that really took the world by storm. And if you don't know what Rush Talk was, it's in um, college kind of in university settings, Sorority Rush is huge, right? You show your outfits and you go back and forth and it's really exciting. But Rush Talk kind of took social media by storm because it created a huge following in regards to what sorority recruitment was. I think it could be really interesting if you take kind of that viral cultural like aspects of things and do like Rush Talk for health. Who knows what that would look like, but it really created a wave and a cascade into like, what is this phenomenon of sorority rush? It would be cool if we had, what is this phenomenon of routine screening or of vaccination or of something like that? So could be interesting. Who knows? Love it. Erica. So I'll be honest, this is, this is tough for me because I do try and limit my social media outside of work hours. <laughs> I did survive during the pandemic on some BuzzFeed lists as a child in the 80s and 90s. I do like those throwbacks. But in general, I love that people are becoming aware of the algorithms and they understand how that's affecting their interaction with social media. And it has caused, to your point earlier, Ben, about younger people informing older people, 
younger people now understand when I see one thing, I need to go get that confirmed three, four, five different times. That is just so heartening to me to see people recognize those algorithms and realize how they can beat them. Nice. Ava, what's standing out to you at the moment? So there are two things. One is TikTok video by Raven the Science Maven, who you had people last summer going around singing a song specifically about COVID-19 antibodies and how the antibodies work. I mean, that is just incredible in terms of how we're relaying uh, information. The other thing I will mention is um, the What Women Want campaign. And there's an interactive dashboard that uses a chat bot um, to really elevate women's voices and ask them, you know, what's their one wish for quality, uh, reproductive and maternal health care services. And then stakeholders around the world are, are able to see all of those answers. And I think it's a really nice way to center patients' voices and have policy stakeholders, advocacy stakeholders, whoever really needs to learn this information, be able to access it um, and continue elevating the voice of the patient. And and again, last but by no means least, Kristen, what's what's caught your attention? So I am the outlier here because I'm a my mentor calls me a super millennial. <laughs> I love all things social media, and I just recently got on TikTok, even though I know it's Gen Z's thing. You know what I mean? Um, but I am really fascinated in how younger people are exploring cognitive dissonance and exploring the 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 phenomena that two things can be true at once. And I'll give you this really, it's way off topic, so forgive me. Um, but right now going on, Kim Kardashian and Kanye West are in the middle of the messiest divorce I have ever seen in my lifetime, right? And I'm no fan of, of Kim Kardashian, but people, there's so much, um, there's so much vitriol coming from um, Mr. Mr. West and it's, it can be perceived as, as harassing and people are starting to understand you may not like Kim Kardashian you may say she appropriates black culture she's a, you know she loves attention but she is also being harassed and I think with that people can you know kind of understand when I say yes I have a tattoo but I'm also getting a vaccination you know what I mean like there's things two things can be true at the same time. Um, I think what's amazing is that TikTok is a lot of where, is, is the reason why a lot of young people find their information. And they're starting to point out misinformation and disinformation way better than even millennials or Gen Xers. And, you know, a lot of times you'll see like, oh, you know, that's, they call it cap, that's cap, that's a lie. That, you know, they just posted that so that they could get attention. Um, and I love that because it makes me feel like the youth are going to be okay. <laughs> I love that. What a, what a great, a great place to end um, this podcast. Um, I, I've got to say uh, th this has been such a fascinating and um energetic and and optimistic and we need optimism in these times um conversation it's it's really good to see how um uh, the use of these new technologies combined with a really good understanding of of epidemiology and evaluation plus community outreach which of course is so important to all of us but see how this comes together and see how we can have really concrete results so i gotta say thank you so much um elise galloway 
Erica DeWald, Ava Skolnick, and Kristen Hobbs. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Vax Up podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in the show, please check the show notes or visit us on our website at www.vaxuppodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Vax Up Podcast. And please consider subscribing to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or on your favorite podcast platform. The Vax Up Podcast is produced by Hunuvat and NewsDoc Media. Writer and producer is Troy Espera. Graphic design by Michael Jarrett. Narration by Sherry CB. And the executive producers are Eric Espera and Ben Plumley. Thank you, and see you next time.